Hey gang, before we get into this week's Review Crew episode, I need to point out that this one has an explicit content warning. Why? Well, it's not just because an F-bomb gets dropped uh, during one of the casual interchanges. Um, that definitely happens pretty early on. But when you get to my segment of this uh, at the end, the last section, which is about, I want to say about probably about 55 minutes in, because this is a long one, um, uh, to my surprise, I go off. Uh, I go off uh, pretty hard about um, a lack of masking at the event I was at, um, and uh, I am quite passionate about uh, everyone's safety uh, for various reasons. Um, I might, uh, you know, I was a little even maybe embarrassed on some level and think, like, oh, should this really go out there? And you know what? Nope. Nope. Needs to go out there. Needs to go out there. Because I'm not actually embarrassed. Um, if you're someone who feels very strongly the opposite way, uh, if uh, you are uh, very much against uh, anything like a mask mandate, uh, you'll probably be deeply offended by the things I say. And that's okay by me. Um, we really disagree. And uh, sometimes that's what happens in the world. So, uh on the other hand, if you don't want to hear me curse a blue streak and uh, don't want to expose yourself to that energy, uh, you know what? Feel free to tune out uh, once I come along. Uh, it definitely uh, change the tone, even of some of the stuff we're recording afterwards. Uh, it, uh, Yeah, so that's in me. You are forewarned. Uh, and I'm sure some of you are just going to skip right to it because, you know, you, you want to go check it out. So um, I might say a few things afterwards. I might do a, a closing thing. Uh, but um, here you go. Uh, here's the show. Hey, everybody. It is sometime after five o'clock on the West Coast on this, the most equal day of the year, other than that other equal day of the year. That's right. It's the autumnal equinox, and this is the No Persinium Review Crew. I am your host, Noah Nelson, my, your host for this week anyway, joining me from bum, 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 across town in Los Angeles. Wait, there's two of them. Our executive editor, that would be. Hello, this is Catherine Yu. Joining us from the East Coast, our East Coast curator at large. Hi there, everyone. This is Blake Weil. Blake, should we say what city you're in? I mean, right now. Right now, I am calling in from Philadelphia, but um, I travel. I will be going up and down the East Coast over the next month and a half or so. So, uh, well, I'm, I'm based in Philly. Let's just say based in Philly. And you know what? For immersive purposes on the East Coast, other than New York City, Philly's the place to be. Just going to throw that out there. Just going to butter up the Philly crowd a little bit. Uh, from the other side of Los Angeles, although probably not actually other side. Laura, I have no idea which part of town you live in. Do not reveal it here. Uh, that is not – don't don't take the key the wrong way. Uh, we have No Pros Arts Editor. Hi, Laura Hess. All right. I got a mood tonight. Uh, we were talking before the show. Everyone drew lots, i.e. I ordered everyone into a certain order. Uh, Catherine, you're going first. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, yeah, this past Sunday, Venice VR Expanded wrapped. It ran from September 1st through the 19th, I believe, across a variety of platforms uh there were vr chat experiences and worlds some for pc vr some quest friendly there were a number of pc vr experiences on viveport so if you have a pcr set pc vr setup that's how you could see some of these pieces and then a number of pcs a number of pieces were also on oculus quest and so it was kind of like an interesting experiment they were building upon the fact that they had had a VRChat social world last year with the bulk of the content being on Viveport accessible through PC VR and then a couple of Oculus Quest exclusives. And so I think this year they expanded the VRChat version even more and there were even more Oculus Quest exclusives. And then you still had the core of the content being available through Viveport, which is a piece of software that's pretty similar to like something like Steam. Um, and yeah, I did my best. Um, I tried to see 
everything that was in a competition. Uh, I ended up writing up, let's, I want to say like 20 pieces um, in our diaries. I think so I wrote yeah. Four. I think I managed to get four in. Um, no, you got, you got three. I got three? <laughs> I did see four though. Yes. So. Um, so yeah, on a previous episode of Review Crew, I think I went on and on about Le Bal de Paris de Blancali, which was a standalone VR version of what's meant to be a location-based multi-actor, multiplayer immersive experience that's spinning back up in Paris and hopefully will go on tour. And it's extremely ambitious. Think Chained meets the Void slash Dreamscape kind of vibes. Um, but I did want to talk about some of the other pieces that caught my eye, just that are doing really interesting stuff because that's what Venice is all about. It's cutting edge material projects that are really playing with the differences between film and game, the different affordances of VR, ways that you can invite the participant to really be a part of the story world. Um, one of them was a project that came out of the... Uh, Biennial College. So that's kind of like their more boot camp educational thing. And it was called Labyrinthos. And it's a pretty short, like 15 minute animated piece that tells the story of a labyrinth, a minotaur, and his next kind of victim, uh, a woman named Cora. And one thing that they did that was just really kind of mind blowing was that they took your typical six foot by six foot uh, three-dimensional space and they really tried to break like in terms of non-Euclidean geometry and so in the maze the maze itself is like three-quarter scale so you are kind of like a giant in the maze and there were multiple instances where you as the participant would need to kind of crouch down a little duck through an arch and then as soon as you cross that threshold you're in something that is theoretically architecturally impossible based upon your understanding of the world before going through the arch so you would go through these thresholds and all of a sudden have impossible architecture impossible things happening and i like i psyched myself out a lot and i would like stand there go through an arch and be like whoa where did this room come from and then i would actually back up in vr and be like what this no the what i'm seeing in the set in the environment there's no way that this room exists and then i would go back through the arch and then i would be in that room and so i thought that was like just a really excellent use of the fact that virtual reality as a platform allows immersive environments and immersive designers to do stuff that's literally physically impossible so that was something that i was like this is super neat i love this mechanic and i really hope that this project has a life beyond venice and then the other project I wanted to call out is actually, um, so they kind of did like a prologue of an upcoming VR game called The Last Worker. And you were just kind of getting that like beginning taste of the game itself. And so it was doing a lot of really smart things in terms of game design and story and world building in that you start out in media res where as soon as you begin the experience, you're in a mech and you're battling, and you're essentially going down this like long alley, long trench, and you're punching drones and punching through walls. And then when you get to the end, all of a sudden you see like the big bad and he looks at you and he's like, you're fired. And you're like, whoa, okay, uh, what kind of world is this? And who am I? And why have I already been fired by someone who's clearly the villain? And because of this setup, it kind of naturally lent itself to almost like a title credits sequence where you start um, getting a lot of the backstory of the main character through almost like a cinematic cutscene where you're being shown a dystopian society and the main character who's you is a factory worker and there's some subplot with a romantic partner who then disappears and the whole time um, they're playing with scale and you as the participant, as the main player character, uh, actually inside a cardboard box full of the kind of a stuff. Like, you know, that movie trope where, you know, someone's been fired because they pack all their stuff in a banker's box. They were kind of leaning into that and using those visual archetypes that we know from film and television to help 
build the story world and drop a little bit of backstory and lore without necessarily being really heavy handed or explicit about it. It was more around like, oh, I'm in the environment. Where, ah, the kind the kind of person that would like be fired would have this kind of stuff. Where 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 in the world are the are the creators from again? Did you, uh, or did I, you say? I am not sure. I would have to look that up. Um, because that's that's the first thing when you were talking about that kind of feels like like a sign that like you know this is definitely like a Western culture thing, like the the banker's box thing, you know. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like uh, that, I like think they're show. out of. The United Kingdom. UK. Okay. That but, makes yeah, sense. yeah. So like EU, UK, Europe. Um, and so in this game's prologue, like the first chapter is this mech battle. The second chapter is more of like a cinematic cutscene. And the third one, which I thought was super intriguing, um, all of a sudden you're plunged into this thing where you're almost like the operator of heavy machinery. It's almost like a futuristic forklift. And they introduce a companion character who's a drone and a robot who talks to you and your character speaks back to them. And through the conversation with this busted ass drone, it turns out that the drone thinks it's your first day on the job, but your character is like, what's going on? I've been here for 25 years, but because the dumb drone thinks it's your first day, you get the whole backstory of like, this is the corporation and this is what we do, and this is the warehouse, and here's what your job is. And then um, in your like little forklift, there's a tiny mirror so you can see yourself, and there's also a picture of you kissing your former romantic partner that's like hung up with like a clothespin. And so I just really liked how they were using all these like very clever mechanics in terms of environmental storytelling and doing lore drops through very natural dialogue and scenarios that like when you when you start to notice this thing these things you'll see that some in some video games and in some immersive pieces immersive pieces it'll feel really heavy-handed that like this is a lore drop here is the backstory but the way that they were able to integrate the backstory into what you were doing in the game itself, whether you were punching through walls to get at the big bad or whether you were operating your like space forklift, I thought was really interesting. Uh, this is coming out at some point next year. You can wish list The Last Worker on Steam. And uh, again, like one of the reasons why the Venice VR expanded programming is so interesting is that you get like 180 films and 360 films, but you also get stuff that is treading that line between a film and a game where there, you know, parts of it might be on rails, but they're also using a lot of game design language, but it's also interactive. So I thought that was really great. And they really leverage a lot of the affordances of VR really well, because you could do this as a seated experience, but because you're literally like driving a forklift, you've got those like gear shifts and levers. So you're like, ah, I am truly um, embodying this like character from that first person perspective, which we are so good at. And that again can is, I actually, oh, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, can, sorry. Can we go to, I have a question about this, um, this really interesting threshold moment of, of these uh, moving into these worlds that like physically are impossible. And I'm curious, like, so I mean, will you just talk a little bit more about that? Like, were you were you stepping into a space and then your own movement, the physics for your person also shifted? Like, how did the mechanics for how you moved into that space, how was that incorporated into these, like, physically impossible worlds? Oh, yeah. So for Labyrinthos, I was moving my own body in my living room and it was using kind of like a classic immersive theater thing which was like follow me or come this way or i think the door's over here and we're like okay well it's time to go turn to the corner oh my god how did they do that so a lot of these very clever design decisions that you know theoretically you're on rails but it doesn't feel like you're on rails because you're being invited to go places with the character and to follow them and you're curious what's around the next bend. I mean, that's one of the reasons why mazes are so popular, both in haunts, but also in games is 
you re- you you your site is occluded, you don't know what's around the corner, anything could literally happen. I that sounds so rad. And so you I don't mean to drill down on this too hard. So just one more like clarification. So but like I guess can you describe one the, the transition from one world and then into this a different space where you were like, oh my gosh, I have to back up. This is impossible. This is mm-hmm. I mean, was it terrifying or it was so exciting, but you were unsure? So the first couple times you do it, um, you're at your own pace. Like the characters haven't shown up yet. You're just kind of like being given environmental clues that you should go a specific way. And I realized I'm in my living room and I'm literally walking in circles. But in the game, it doesn't feel like I'm walking in circles. So they're using redirected walking for that? Uh, yeah, and just kind of breaking uh, geometry. So the fact that they made you crouch a little and go through kind of a thick archway means that as you're crossing that threshold, you can't really see um, peripheral vision wise what's about to happen so that like sequencing and revealing how the world would get smaller in the archway and then more expansive once you left and then smaller again when you went through a gate and then more expansive once you left which is super clever and harkens back to a lot of what like theme park dark ride designers do so once again that one is the last worker and it's going to be out later this year on or early next year on Steam or sometime sometime <laughs> before the end of next yeah. year on so, Steam. We got to be careful. So Labyrinthros was the one about that that's like obviously it's about a labyrinth and right. it's about the Minotaur myth. So I'm not sure about that project if that's coming out, but I know for sure the last worker is like they're actively trying to finish the game right now. Okay. I I got a little jumbled up there. Blake, you are quite enthusiastic about the thing you most recently saw. So, uh, and I haven't heard lick one about this yet. So break it on down for us. What do you got for us this week? Oh my God. So I am coming in today to gush, gush, I guess is the word about Artifacts of No Consequence, which was perhaps the only piece of art about the pandemic I have liked since the start of the pandemic, Um, but which went about it in a really interesting way. Uh, So Artifacts of No Consequence, I would say, is probably best classified as performance art. It is a solo immersive show that's been produced as a part of the 2021 Philadelphia Fringe Festival. And the show invites you as an audience into a recreation of the creator, Jeff Evans's childhood bedroom, created from actual objects from his childhood bedroom, uh, diaries, photos, old toys. And these are things that you're going to recognize. I recognized my own, you know, multi-part snap together Megazord from when I was seven. I recognized the full Animorphs set. And you're invited to dig through all this material as he monologues and welcomes you to try to find something. Um, And that something gets left pretty vague, at least at the start of the piece. But as it goes on, and Jeff really pulls you into his world with this very sort of halting, tentative style, um, and dialogue which makes really interesting use of tense. As he does everything in the piece, he talks about it as if he will do it, that these are all things that he's planning, even if he is enacting them in the present. And it slowly becomes clear that what this piece is really about is the pain of losing yourself during the pandemic and how stressful it is to feel this sense of divorce from all the things that used to define you 
And that paired with this experience that a lot of us have had of returning to our childhood bedrooms and finding all these old artifacts, like so much shed snakeskin that used to define us and finding that they don't really fit anymore and wondering how you got where you are today, looking at things that don't seem to even indicate a path. And this sounds like the most dour show on earth when I phrase it like that, but what really makes it special is that it's also very warm and very funny. Jeff constantly will reassure the audience, you know, do not worry, this is not one of those shows where I'm going to put on a million different hats and pretend to be different parts of my subconscious. And then there will be a 15 second pause as he kind of stares intensely and longingly at the giant rack of hats in the corner that you just know are going to come out and he's going to have to do that by the end of the show. There's a couple musical numbers. There are, you know, characters that he performs in the middle of it. And it really keeps it moving at a at a good clip without it getting too sour. But at the same time, there is this profound melancholy throughout the whole piece that really speaks to an emotion that I think I have been feeling pretty intensely in my life, but maybe haven't been able to articulate. And that's something that I really appreciate when good theater can do. And I think immersive is uniquely suited to do because it creates mood better than any other medium that I know. And so for clarity, are you, this is, I mean, you're saying performance art. And so is this an entire presentation that you are um, certainly invested in, but that you are watching or there is interactivity? There's definitely interactivity. It is about an hour long presentation and there's a lot of monologues during it, but you're both invited to explore the space and sort of talk back turn some of the monologues into a dialogue. And also, sort of the big central interactive element that I didn't touch on is that you are given, I'd say about a third of the way through the shows, the creator's actual childhood-to-present journals and diaries and invited to rifle through them and pull any quotes you think might mean something that you hand to him. And it's it's such, you know, diary reads have become sort of a popular form of art because there is this radical disclosive nature to them, but not even to have them curated. It's clear there is too much content in these journals for him to be familiar with all of it. He was clearly, you know, prepared to handle it, but surprised by some of the things that the audience picked out for him to read. And it sort of becomes this collaborative process of both taking in everything that he's giving the audience and also trying to, as a collective, construct whatever person Jeff Evans was or might be or maybe still is. I think what I'm most curious about is is really trying to understand why why this particular show this particular performer this particular story why do you feel like this has been the most impactful pandemic experience of art that you've had so that's kind of a great question and one that i was dwelling on for a little bit last night i would say First is just that this is one of the least on-the-nose pieces of pandemic art that I've seen. I feel like a lot of works that have been rooted in the pandemic have been more about the circumstances surrounding it as opposed to the feelings surrounding it. Uh, The words COVID or quarantine or isolation aren't mentioned once in this piece. At the same time, there are definitely themes within it that I don't want to fully spoiled because this piece will be available for streaming pretty soon that speak to 
a lot of the concerns that I've seen as pretty universal. Two, the performer themselves, super warm and super down to earth. There was a sense that this was not a prescriptive piece, that this wasn't telling us, even if this was attempting to speak to a universal feeling, this wasn't attempting to prescribe that feeling to us. It was an attempt to universally mourn the people that we were and that maybe we longed to be. And then I guess just speaking to more generally what hit me as great about this piece, it really is that sense of I almost want to say it's that it lets the audience discover what it's about on its own time that it it becomes clear as the piece goes on for sure. But there's this very interesting structural balancing act going on where it starts as a piece where the audience is playing with Power Rangers figures and croquet mallets and the other bits and bobs that you might find in like a 12 year old's bedroom. But as it goes on and each realization is made and themes start to pop up again and again and the performance seems to hit this pitch of not a manic desperation but a quiet desperation that's where really it starts to dawn on the audience that oh my god we're looking at the ways all of us kind of broke down over the past year trying to figure out who we are in this new world and that we got to do it collaboratively. You know, I've seen some individual pandemic art where it's very easy to go, oh, I'm just reading into this based on my own experience. But because it was this piece where there was a sense of sort of audience collaboration in trying to reach, you know, an epiphany of identity, even if it never came, then we were able to see each other's reactions to it and realize that, oh no, we are not alone in feeling this way. And that sense of permission really made it special. And Bleak, uh, what was the name of that one again? Sure thing. This one was Artifacts of No Consequence by Jeff Evans. Sadly, tonight was the last live show. However, it will be available for streaming on October 1st through the end of the Fringe Festival. And... While it might not be quite as strong uh, remotely, I still highly recommend it. Laura, you drew the next straw, uh, and you have something that a whole bunch of people messaged me about over this weekend. What's <laughs> what's on uh, what's on the agenda? I am not surprised. It is fucking fantastic. <laughs> Haven't seen the show in New York. I'll let you go though. <laughs> God damn it! Now we have to put the 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 the, the fuck warning on. So no. <laughs> <laughs> The fuck warning is always on. Welcome to No Presidio. When the red light. No, anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, yes, Laura, what do we have? <laughs> yeah, I'm really fired up about this show. So a little bit of context. This is Pippalotti Wrist, who is a Swiss artist. This is her first West Coast rest- retrospective, which I want to bring Catherine in a minute into this conversation because she has seen what is predominantly the same show, um, although there are some differences, there's some new work, but um, she had seen a variation of the show in New York a couple of years ago. So this is called Pipilati Wrist, Big Heartedness, Be My Neighbor. It's at the MoCA Geffen Contemporary in Los Angeles. This has a long run. So this is great. This runs through June 6th of 2022. Um, I was super excited to see this show. I was not able to make it to New York. Uh, I was not living in New York or visiting in New York during the Pixel Forest show um, back whenever that was, Catherine, 2018? Um, Probably earlier. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. So um, this is, so there's a lot of stuff to talk about with this, but I'm going to try to keep it succinct and have some dialogue around this. So um, this show is Pipilati Wrist works in um, 
she's a multimedia artist, but her anchor medium is video. And there is loads of video throughout this exhibition. So people that have been to the Mocha Geffen Contemporary, it's a huge space. And it really is transformed by this exhibition. And this has pieces back from the 1980s, as well as contemporary work from this year. So Wrist has a very unique perspective. It's often very playful, very sensuous. And the combination of what you have here is uh, some incredibly large scale physical installations that you, you know, go inside and around or, you know, things that you um, sit on. I'm trying not to give too much away. And then again, there's video embedded throughout. And when I say that, I mean that literally. There is even um, video embedded in the floor. And the scale is really interesting. There's really tiny, tiny pieces. And then there's these incredibly large scale pieces. So this is a very immersive show. And it is the thing that I'm most interested to talk about right now is that one of the key themes of Wrist's work is the, the public versus the private, how we decide what that is, and whether that's relating to our bodies, whether that's relating to our psyche, um, whether that's relating to our physical spaces. So this is a, a, a key exploration of Wrist's work. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating that here's a show that I'm going to that has so much video. And it's like, oh, we've just, you know, we've been entrenched in digital for the past, whatever it is now, 18, 20 months. I, I don't even, I've lost count. So I was like, how is this going to feel? Again, there's, there's a lot of physical spaces, but there's just so much video. And I was like, is this going to feel new in any way? Um, and it did. It felt, I think, even more resonant, although the caveat there is that I had never experienced Wrist's work beforehand. So I have no, and this is where I want to bring Catherine into the conversation, I don't have any um, expectations around her work from before the pandemic. I have no experience with that. But I was amazed by how fresh and deeply resonant and timely, even though, again, some of this work was made decades ago, well before the pandemic. And one of the things that I want to, to highlight around this is that Wrist has described museums as shared apartments where you can visit each other's brains and bodies. And I think it's such an evocative description. It's, it shows up in her work uh, I mean, to an incredibly deep level. And again, it was just so resonant to go experience this thing that sort of felt like my own home, my own apartment. In a way, it had this surreal feeling that did feel very familiar, but it felt completely novel. And it felt um, like digital had been expanded. The, the experience of the digital medium had been expanded through the pandemic. And yet again, a lot of this work was created before the pandemic. So I think it's it's so it's such a fantastic highlight of how work changes over time, but also how the work can mirror and reflect our experiences in ways I, I think somewhat akin to what Blake was saying about um, Blake. What is the name of the show again? Of no consequence. Artifacts of no consequence. Artifacts of no consequence. Thank you. And that yeah. So. Um, so yeah, I'd love to like Catherine. I'd love for you to jump mm. in and talk about how, what your experience was and see if it kind of where the, that difference was because I think this is it's just amazing what her work has been able to to, to sort of bridge and transcend. Yeah, I think one one really interesting thing is the way that she uses space and tries to dissolve boundaries between the viewer and video. So imagine kind of like a big gallery room, but there's video on all four walls and it's close up, like extreme close ups of nature, like a babbling brook or leaves or the sun filtering through grass. And then you're invited to just lie down and absorb it. And this is a collective activity. And I'm hoping that they like maintained a lot of that kind of sense, Laura, in the Mocha show, but 
you're with a bunch of strangers and you're just all kind of being, you're just being present and listening and observing. But yeah, I have very vivid memories of just like listening to the sounds of a brook, almost hypnotized, lying in a beanbag and like looking around and there were like 20 other people also lying in a beanbag. Or um, the one that's like more Instagram friendly is kind of like these almost jagged looking crystals or shards of gems strung down from the ceiling on multiple lines that slowly pulse and shift and you get gradients of color and you just like run into other people who are in this forest of lights and you are pointing stuff out to each other and wow look at that wow look at this and oh my god it's so fascinating yeah hey have you been here long enough to see its cycle so i think all, the art is think very about, approachable all, all i can think about is like how soon we'll be seeing like dozens of knockoffs of this on <laughs> on facebook now that an it's immersive like, in- installation yeah uh, like yeah. you know yeah. like uh Brought yeah you know, immersive brook, brook, brook immersive braveling book, uh, like coming soon to to a Facebook uh, feed near you. Because... Don't worry, don't worry. It wasn't on Emily in Paris, so oh. this one oh. maybe will oh. get right, right. Well, there are other. I think one of the things that's so interesting too about this show is that there are other. Um, so there's uh, Wonder Spaces. A couple of years ago, there was a piece um, called Submergence by Squid Soup, and it's again, mm. it's it's hung. LED lights, and that has a different kind of programming and feel. There's sort of a murmuration that actually moves through that based on the programming of the lights. Incredibly beautiful and effective. I, what's so fascinating to me about Rist's work is that the, again, there's a there's an underlying thread of humor throughout. Um, and yes, I totally agree with what Catherine's saying. The Pixel Forest, it, it sort of... Um, people would kind of disappear into it, which was a different thing versus like either a Kusama room or again, this other piece I'm talking about, Submergence. It really was so enveloping where, I mean, I was standing there and taking video and photographs and and people would really sort of disappear into it. And then the soundtrack would have sometimes very, you know, strange or very, um, uh, just kind of lovely subdued moments but then there would also be these these moments that were really odd jarring um or or again funny and so there's a unique recipe of what she's bringing together and and as i mentioned in my review and this taps back into what catherine was just saying you have a very intimate experience in the show it's very personal it's very subjective but you also have this incredibly communal shared experience and you really are immersed. And I know we talk a lot about that word. Uh, you really are immersed in not only these spaces, but in her, again, unique sort of recipe, unique perspective. And I got home and I was sitting at my kitchen table and in my periphery, there's a picture window to my left. And in my periphery, I had this very strange sensation and I I was kind of, I turned to the window fully expecting it to be another video projection and for it to take on some of the properties of those videos. And it, I, I mean, that was completely odd. It was completely unexpected. I can't recall the last time something like that happened after going to an art installation. And I think it's such a testament to how, her work affects you on a very subconscious level, which again is, mm-hmm. is, it's not, it is very digestible back to what Catherine was saying. It's, it's so delightful. It is immediately gratifying. It is totally digestible. And yet you take so much home with you. And Christopher Knight, the veteran LA critic for the LA times, the headline for his review was sort of something along the lines of like, forget immersive Van Gogh. You know, this huh. is the thing to go to. And I think it's it's true, not just, I think there's a place for, or there's a there's an itch that the immersive Van Gogh, immersive Monet, all of those immersive art installations are satisfying. But this is something where it, it's affecting you on a much deeper 
I would argue, cellular level. And I think oh, her yeah. work is deceptive in how fun it can be and digestible it can be. There's so much that's happening underneath it that people may not even realize until a little bit more time has passed. It, this is a full course, delicious, nutritional art meal. Well, and I think, oh, yeah. I think the thing is that when we're talking about, you know, installation art, there's installation art as something that is kind of commodified and this idea of like, well, you know, what are the qualities of it? Well, you have projection and you project on things and you have objects and maybe you're projecting on those objects. And there's all the things you can do that like technically do the thing the same way that, you know, uh, a Thomas Kincaid painting is technically a painting, right? You know, like, I mean, I, I get it. There are people who are like, are enthusiastic about Thomas Kincaid paintings. I think that's the the mass produced painting person. I'm trying. I, my my mm-hmm. art world thing isn't perfect, but that, that I could tell you stories about Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> Fantastic. Another okay, podcast. good. All right. So I got it right. Like, that's, that, that's the important thing. I got it right. So like that, you know, a Thomas Kincaid painting is a painting, but it's not the same as a Monet, as a Van Gogh, you know, um, and and the way you exp- the 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 experience that can create, particularly when we're talking about large scale pieces of art that kind of envelop you, that that open up a space between where you are as the observer and the thing which is observed. And there's a there's a real kind of ineffable magic to it that requires an artist and and not just all of the tools of the art. That doesn't mean that some of these things that are being kind of mass produced can't have a great effect. Um, but you know, actually, I'll I'll even I've got a, I've got an example in my section. I'll, I'll give in a second. Uh, so I'll, I'll hold off uh, to to riff on something. But yeah. But like, yeah, like you can tell that Rist is trying to say something, right? And exactly. Kind of tongue in cheek, <laughs> wink, wink. Because once you mentioned the humor aspect, Laura, I do remember like one of the projections being like this hilarious giant eyeball, like extreme close up, like enormous there. And that underlying like self-awareness is also what makes the art super compelling. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I leaving that show, I felt like parts of my brain had been rewired. (laughs) For real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And it's not to say that it's just humorous. Uh, I, I mean, I want to clarify my statements that like there is there's sensuality. There's a lot of humor, a lot of playfulness, and there is deeper resonance. There are explorations of how we perceive our place in the world uh, and sometimes the, you know, the loneliness and the existential crisis that can go along with that. So I think there's, there's so much depth and scope to her work and then certainly to this exhibition itself. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Do you remember when it's running through? Because yes. it's at MoCA right now here in Los Angeles. When does, yes, go, when go, go. When does it's it wrap a, up? It wraps up June 6th of next year. So there's time, but don't delay. All right. I think it's going to be on my list for my uh, vacation week, which is well, uh, coming up. Uh, also, they have a through. deal. Oh, what's the like deal? if you come back, mm-hmm. they give you like a discount. Ooh, <laughs> so no. they want you to come back. Oh, okay. and I can see that it is so I was already plotting who I was going to go back with. And so, yes, it's completely worth going back. That's a smart move on their part. All right. It's got me, got me, back. got me thinking scheming. So. <laughs> Back in a previous life, uh, I got rejected from a job literally across the street from Mocha. So here's hoping that if I make the pilgrimage out to LA next year, this this can turn around that part of town for me. Nice. I'll go with you, Blake. All right. <laughs> okay, moving forward uh, to 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 my uh, two cents. Uh, I've got two things for us uh, tonight. Uh, one of which uh, is sort of you. 
a big thing I want to spend a little bit of time on, uh, and then uh, something that's already wrapped up, which uh, I might want to spend a little bit more time on because uh, there was, there's some interestingness to it. So we'll start with the big thing, and that's uh, I went to my and, – and this honestly would have been like everything right now if this other show that I saw this weekend didn't really get me thinking. Um, and that was that I got to go to Not Scary Farm for the first time this past week. Uh, I, wrote up, I wrote it up in the rundown. And Knotts is Knotts is I've I have a full spectrum relationship with Knotts. Um, you know, Knotts Berry Farm preserves and jams, uh, which you know are, are, are a real thing and are like a really high quality thing. And I boys and berries, they're real. Boys and berries are real. Although I myself am a Knotts strawberry uh, preserves person, like. Every day, every day, it is a staple of of my life. Uh, absolutely love it. Mrs. Knott's Chicken House. I was born in Orange County. I grew up in the Bay Area, but I was born in Orange County. And Knott's, of course, being the other theme park in Orange County, <laughs> uh, was a significant part of my childhood. Uh, the first time I went, uh, someone had a heart attack on the uh the single loop-de-loop coaster which there is called montezuma's revenge uh and that uh put me off of roller coasters uh for my most of my life up until like my early 20s i was just like nope you die if you get on those things uh and there there are times when knots is you know ahead of the curve on innovation uh ghost town alive is this really incredible um larp-esque experience they do during the summer each year where they get all these actors to bring the calico ghost town which is sort of the original part of the park alive uh with characters and it was designed by the two two of the team members who were working on larp projects at disney that would have become the galaxy's edge larp stuff if uh they hadn't cut that from the budget so if you want to get a sense of the kind of thing that was going to happen you could go to ghost town alive and it's really Iger. oh no that wasn't nope. Iger. that was, was that was the other bob um but we don't get oh, we don't, JPEG, you're right we JPEG. We, we, we we don't get into it uh it's, it's another time for that uh this is about knots uh who are doing who, who did that really right who like saw saw something that was being discarded and was like, we can do that. And they did it and, and they do it damn well. Um, Knott's has, uh, it's, it's sort of the original theme park that, um, uh, theme park adventure, uh, for, uh, for, I, I, I that did, Walt I, I, stole from Walt was very inspired by some of the stuff they were doing early on. There was some of that. That's actually uh, I was trying to go a different way, but I had to I had to do a producer ah. thing for a second, um, and so it lost it killed my train of thought. Uh, no, uh, not Scary Farm specifically. Scary Farm. Uh, this was the first theme park haunt, uh, it predates Universal. It in so many ways. If there's no not Scary Farm, you don't really have spooky season in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I feel pretty secure in stating that because Scary Farm started uh, like in the 70s, uh, if memory serves, uh, and has just been going going strong for forever and ever and ever. Um, there were eight mazes this year, one brand new one, uh, one that had premiered in 2019, and then uh, six other older ones. I think there was one, maybe there was a, t- a 2018 maze. Um, they have... Uh, the the designer of the 2019 maze uh, is now with uh, you know a different company. He he left, um, and there's all these intricacies to sort of like you know the the, the haunt world vis a vis knots. It is it is beloved here in the Southland. It is it a lot of people's absolute favorite thing. Um, I can I can definitely see why uh, uh, when it, particularly when it comes to like the the two most recent ones, the maze this year. Uh, the new one, Mesmer, is just fantastic. Uh, like, I, I was, I, we went through like six of the mazes um, up before we did uh, Mesmer as our seventh, and there was there were like two of those six. I was really like, okay, yeah, and like it was. Let me roll back. 
And let me let me cut to the chase on this one because there, there is a, there is a thing to this uh, and the reason why I wanted to talk about it uh, and then of course got a little derailed. Um, the 2019 maze origins was the first of the mazes that where I was like, oh, this really pops. Like this is storytelling. This is this is great, and they were using a lot of the scenic of the park uh, or parts of the scenic of the park incorporating it into the maze, and it was. It was the storytelling thing. It was like the origin story of the Green Witch, which is like one of the more famous knots uh, haunt characters. And in that way, it sort of felt like the kind of thing that you see at uh, at what is probably now the late lamented Dark Harbor at the Queen Mary, which is this, where each of those haunts has this central character that is sort of driving all the action and is like all, all about, it's all a riff on the theme. Uh, it's embodied by, you know, what are these, 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 these masters of, of these different mazes, oh, which is a fascinating concept. Right. Um, and so th- it had a little bit of that, that touch to it. And um, even more so than any of the technology they were using, it was just having that through line carrying it through and having the way they were incorporating the actual park into it. Because a lot of the other mazes and everything we had done up to that point, you know, they're they're in these warehouse spaces, these like tin sheds that are there all year and they build a maze and maybe the scenic's really good or the theme's kind of fun, but like it felt samey. Like each of them felt, and particularly because there was a lot of like, and then you get to the end and there's like a big animatronic thing or like, or here's all the chopped up bodies hanging from the ceiling, which is like, okay, well in Waxworks, the first one I saw that I was like, oh, that's gross and weird, you know, like, oh man. And then I see it in another one. I was like, oh, okay, well, there's this lot of, there's this, this thing they do, you know, they, there's, that's just a trope here. And, and the, there was one that was dark ride, which was like kitschy and kind of like fun at the beginning. And then turned into kind of like you know the the back of the metal album cover right like that that vibe to it which is like you know people love that aesthetic i'm not one of them so i'm like eh, love it or leave it jump scares don't really do much for me uh other than make, remind me to like please don't hurt the poor actor they're just doing their job uh and so i just you know walk around with my hands in my pockets but uh but origins had storytelling to it and then mesmer was just a total trip like the aesthetic was this like you know like late victorian traveling carnival and had this like scene one scene that was just two actors but felt like super sinister and then there was just yeah there were scare actors jumping out and things but there was just like just these weird just just moving walls and moving floors and like death emerging from clocks and it just felt there was one absolutely beautiful thing you walk into this little chamber and there's a woman playing violin except she doesn't have a violin she's just it just looks like she's she's run her arm raw by playing the violin on her arm and like the the recording just says like and they discovered that the most beautiful music came from inside and i'm just like this is macabre this is just beyond weird. I love it. So really my jam, jam came out of that buzzing, went to another one, then came back to that one because this couldn't, couldn't get enough of it. But here's the thing. Orange County, where I was born. Orange County uh, is a culture war zone and uh, not so into the masks. People were just... They, they, they were telling people, hey, masks are recommended, but not required. And uh, there were, I think there were some signs actually maybe said that they were required. It was a little confusing, but there were a hell of a lot of people walking around those mazes without any masks on. That included the employees. Um, you know, I, I hope all the employees are vaxxed. It's Orange County, though. I don't know. And it just... It just feels like we've come so far. We're 18 months into this. We're going on the 19th month. And I just don't like the idea that the people who aren't willing to do what it takes for us to get the fuck over this fucking pandemic. And I've lost people in this thing, right? I have skin in the game. And that people aren't willing to just fucking take one for the goddamn team and just do what's necessary are instead being rewarded for being big old babies 
and being let's just run around and that this could, you know, I am certain that plenty of the people who were there were not vaccinated. And it's just like having to be reminded, it's weird. You know, I know that the reason why they're they're not getting in people's faces about it. And I, I saw one guy like, you know, who wasn't a mask, tell, tell an employee, hey, could you pull your mask up? And the employee was like, no, no, I don't have to. While he was like security screening him in. And I was just like, well, that's bullshit. You know, like that's, that's a, that's a, that's someone who's been invited. It was invited dress night. You know, it was press night. It's like, and that's how the employees are treating people. And I was just like, well, this is just feels fucking sloppy. And the art is, you know, the art is even good, right? Like there's th- parts about this where the art is good and just have that going on and to have the people have people being rewarded for behaving badly this entire time. And it's like, oh, their delicate sensibilities can't handle seeing people in masks. Fuck that. It's just, it's, it's Halloween. It's, it's be- the mask is often part of your costume. I fucking also, love it. Also, if you're screaming, it. you're spraying aerosols, right? Oh, you're yeah. Screaming. But just, 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 <laughs> so just so they're fucking being, because like, here's the thing, right? Like, Oh, like, oh, it's going to ruin my fun if I'm wearing a mask. Oh, it's going to throw me out of the experience of wearing a mask. Well, guess what? It fucking threw me out of the experience because all I can think about is all the fucking idiots who are walking around this thing who are exposing themselves. Um, and so you're going, this is the thing, you're going to impact one group or the other. And I'm just saying right now that I, for my part, am done pampering well because you wrote in your review correct me if i'm wrong but you wrote in your review that there were real ramifications for you on several levels um i mean you're a you know a, a caregiver to a certain degree i mean there's people that you have to be very conscientious of yeah. and you had what you you know didn't know are these symptoms of covid do i have just the beginnings of a cold i mean we're getting close to you know flu season and, and that that I mean, then impacted. The thing, for, the thing for me was like the day before I got my flu shot, which I got in part because I'm like, I'm about to go into this fucking soup. Let me get my flu shot. Right. You know, cause I'm, I am fully vaxxed. So like I, and I know like the math, it's like, there's a one in 32,000, you know, 36,000 chance I'll get a breakthrough case. Right. And I stayed masked and I took, and I took the precautions for me, but going through and knowing like, oh, this looks like it's a fucking hot spot. This look like it, it is going to, because I, I can tell, I can look around and say, like, oh, none of these people are taking it seriously. So, and, and that just extends the pain. That just means we live with masks for longer, right? For those of us who give a shit about other people. And yeah, you know, I don't want to take the risk every time of like, oh, I could risk a breakthrough, breakthrough case. And then like, I could like pass it on to a friend's kids, or I could pass it on to my cancer patient mother, right? Like I can think two steps ahead. That doesn't make me a fucking genius. It doesn't make me better than other people. It's just, I'm doing the fucking work. And I just look around and see people just like YOLOing it. I'm like, oh, you're fucking lazy. And you don't give a shit about anyone but yourself. What, why should any of us make accommodations for you if you're not willing to make accommodations for others? It's that goddamn simple and if i've turned off a bunch of people listening to this good good you should hurt you should feel bad i want you to feel bad because i'm fucking over it i just am i didn't intend to go this hard but here we are um happy halloween happy halloween um in fact, to the point where like no I'm, one else in party don't stop. I'm not. I'm not going to talk about the other one. I wanted to talk about the other one, but you know what? I I've put myself in a foul mood now, so I'm not going to talk about the other one. And and here's what sucks. I would go back. I would I would pay to go back to knots to do mesmer again to do origin again. Uh, to to if you felt safe. Yeah. If I didn't. If I didn't feel no, because like I I I know I could like get through it without. If I didn't feel like I was rewarding, pampering people who do not deserve it. Right? That's Well, now I'm real excited for all these haunts I'm going to go out to in rural Pennsylvania. 
yeah i'm just like it's it it doesn't fucking take much you know like just 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 wear the goddamn mask it's not a big fucking deal i mean it is a huge fucking deal but i'm just i'm i'm so i'm so I'm so tired of the bullshit culture war we have right now. We're at war with a virus and every goddamn day we don't end its, we don't break its supply chain of fresh bodies is another day we get closer to it totally undoing all the work we've already done. It's as simple as that. And and if people can't see it that way, then they need to be listening to better sources of information because that is what the fuck is going on. Oh God! Sorry, everybody. Uh, but yeah, um, I I have very strong feelings about this, as we can tell. So, um, but yeah. Well, so it's you, not getting pick of the week, is what you're saying. It's not getting pick of the week. Uh, it's definitely not Thank getting you, pick of the everyone. week. And it, here's what sucks. Making it through. It to could. The it could. It could get pick of the week. I would be. I'd be making a case that Mesmer alone is worth the price of admission that, that their, that their instinct to do some fun ghost town alive type stuff with the, their goring 20 section, which I also didn't talk about, but it was like, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's more like wild goose chase than anything like that, but it's still cute and fun. Like all of that stuff. There's so much good going on. And that's why, like, if it just, if it just uniformly sucked, I wouldn't spend a minute thinking about it or talking about it. I'd just be like, well, that sucked and no one was wearing a mask. But it didn't suck. And and that's why it makes me angry. All right. Um, yep. On that note. Uh, Let's record pick of the week. We're going to go record pick of the week. So uh, those of you who are on the, the main, who are hanging out in the main stage, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, the cafe will be open. Everybody else, uh, you can listen to the main show this week and uh, hear what the pick of the week is. Odds are, because there's editing that needs to be done. This is the this review crew show is probably going up on Thursday, not Wednesday, and you will hear the pick tomorrow. Uh, until then, thank you for wearing the mask. <laughs>